0: Inspiration, success stories, expert advice, strategies, new ideas, and amazing conversations. Everything you need to become a great speaker. This is Oscar Santolaya, and welcome to Time to Shine. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Time to Shine, In this podcast, and of course, when you have been reading or hearing some people about public speaking, we are often told what is bad English, what is good English when speaking, so what is bad language could be, of course, in other languages as well. So our today's guest will bring quite different perspectives, what is good and bad English. Today's guest is Valerie Friedland. She is a professor of linguistics In the English department at the University of Nevada, Reno, she writes a popular language blog on psychology today called Language in the Wild, and is also a professor for the Great Courses series. Valerie is author of the recent book Like, Literally, Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Hello, Valerie.
1: Hello, Oscar. Thanks for having me today.
0: It's a pleasure having you, Valerie. Super excited to hear um, what you are doing, and of course, a lot about the the book that you just released. Congratulations for that.
1: Thank you. It's been fun. Definitely had a lot to say about it all over (laughs) the world.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. So, please start telling us uh, your journey to become a speaker.
1: Oh, sure. Well, I'm a professor, so speaking is part of the the gig, uh, so to speak, on that one. I obviously talk a lot to my students about the subject matter that we have to get through that day. Uh, but I also do a lot of public speaking, so I'll I'll go give talks about linguistics to general audiences. And specifically, I'm a sociolinguist, which means I study how language and society interact. And a lot of times those are the types of questions and and topics that people want me to talk about. And what I find when I go give public talks a lot of times is I'll talk about language in large pictures. So how language has evolved over time, uh, what we know about the origin of language, what we know about the origin of English and various processes that are occurring in English today that have social triggers But after I get done talking, a lot of times people come up to the podium to talk to me about my talk and they'll say something like, oh, I hate it when people say literally, non literally, or I hate it when people use like all the time. They They come to me with their pet peeves, which is interesting because my job as a linguist is to look at language in a descriptive way, why people do what they do rather than telling people not to do things. But people are very curious about the speech around them. They're very curious about the things that seem wrong to them in language, and we're also very judgmental. So we we have a really great propensity to make decisions about people, uh, whether we like them, whether we dislike them, whether we'll employ them, whether we won't, whether we'll date them, whether we won't, whether we think our teen is appropriate, whether they're not, all of those on just the basis of a few words we hear them say. And so what I realized is I don't think listeners, I don't think just general speakers who don't have a linguistic background have the tools to understand why language is the way it is, why these new features come into language, and how they are not mistakes, they're not bad English, but they arise to fill a void or serve a social purpose for the speakers that use them. And they may not be part of our background, they may not be part of our speech, but that doesn't mean they're not legitimate features of language. And so to call them bad English is to make a moral judgment. And I think we have to separate ourselves from our opinions about what good and bad speech are, because we're usually historically inaccurate. So I thought I'd write the book to try to help elucidate the history of these features, the purpose and the power behind them, and also just help people understand why we feel so strongly about the way other people talk. And that really was what started me on this journey to writing this book. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, quite uh, ironic that someone in the audience would scrutinize a, a linguist. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very intrigued to hear when you are going to show us more in detail what is behind some of this. You start mentioning li- like literally some of these uh, typical words that are scrutinized, as I as I said <laughs> before. Um, right. But before that, tell us, um, so is there any bad English or there is no such a thing as bad English?
1: Well, certainly there is bad English when you talk about things that are just purely incorrect. So, you know, purely mistakes. People mm-hmm. do make mistakes when they talk. Um, but... The forms that we call bad English, so those associated, for example, with African-American speakers or other ethnic groups, um, a lot of times non, non-native speakers are accused of speaking bad English. Hmm. Um, certainly a lot of ethnic groups that are native speakers of English but just don't speak the standard form, they're accused of speaking bad English. Young women are often accused of speaking bad English. Those are ju- are really moral judgments mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with the English they speak. Now, there are rules. There are absolutely rules that underlie the way we speak. So, for example, when I say something like, um, John thought the man saw himself. Rules, language rules, cognitive rules are what guide a listener to understand who the himself refers to. So when I say that sentence, there are two subjects that could possibly be the antecedent for himself, John or the man, both of them could be himself. But Hmm. because I know language rules, I understand when I say John thought the man saw himself, that the only possible antecedent for himself is the man. Nobody would think it was John. The fact that we all think the same way means there is a rule in our brain that guides us to do that. Now, if I said that I was referring to John there, that would be bad English because I wouldn't be following the rules of English. So there are rules, there are absolutely rules or else we would not be able to construct sentences and understand each other. But we misunderstand what rules of language are and we put social rules in the same category as linguistic rules. So I think that the trick is there is disliked English. There are Mm -hmm. things we don't like people to say, but that's a very different thing than saying it's bad English, which assumes there's something wrong with it. So what we're doing instead is making a social judgment about the fact that we don't like it, but we're—it's not morally bad, um, and I think that's the distinction that's important.
0: Yes, I think you—you have put it very clear now. Now, at the end, excellent. So let, let's start with a few examples. Actually, in public speaking, um, many people point to the fillers like "um," um. So, what's your view about those no sounds, let's say?
1: Right, the filled pauses. So, in linguistics, we call those either hesitation markers or filled pauses, and that's the uh and the um that um, often appear in our, our speech when we're talking to other people, and all languages seem to have them. So, in English, of course, it's these two uh and um, but in other languages, um, like, for example, Japanese, you get ano and eto, um, and uh, I think in Spanish, it's esta mm. is one of the very common ones. There are lots of different ones, and, and all languages seem to have at least two. So it's really interesting that we would have a feature that is so disliked, right? No one says add more um and us when you're public speaking, but <laughs> no. yet so universal. And if something is that universal, if it's found in all languages, and not only is it found in all languages, but two of them at least are found in all languages, if not more, they must be serving some sort of function because it would be weird for languages all around the world to have the same features for no purpose. So I think that question is not how do we feel about them in terms of when we hear people say them if we like them or not, but what what are they doing for us? And if we look at psycholinguistic research on what they do for us, there's some very, very interesting findings. Um, The first really interesting finding is where we tend to use them. So if we look at the pattern of where speakers use um and uh, we find that they tend to occur before more difficult cognitive processing tasks. So when I'm doing something easy, when I'm answering a question with a really simple statement, I am probably not likely to say uh, or um. But when I'm I'm thinking up things that are very syntactically complex, meaning I'm gonna say a really long sentence, or I'm going to use a word that is not highly familiar to me. So I'm in a context where I'm I'm using a new word. So for example, a business word or um, you know, a word I've heard elsewhere, or a word that I don't use very often, but I I do no, I just don't use it very often, or a more abstract word. Those are all cases where we find it increases the use of um and uh, probably because it is a matter of brain activation. So the more your brain needs to fire and trigger and do this sort of lexical search in your brain, the more likely you'll indicate a pause by saying um or uh. So the Fascinating thing about that is it's basically telling us when someone's using Amina that they are doing harder work, not easier work. So instead of being lazy, they're being really productive. And we just have it's just a signal that they're firing their brain in in a very difficult manner. Uh the other really interesting thing is because we utter it are in a way that's audible so you don't just take a silent pause you take an audible pause so uh or um it leads to the question of why don't we just pause silently if our brain needs to work and that's where we get into some more interesting findings on the communicative value of filled pauses and what we find is when you say um Versus uh, it not only signals that you're going to need a delay, so that gives some information to the listener not to interrupt you. Because if you pause silently, a lot of times people misconstrue that as you're done. You're done with your speaking turn and they may jump in. But when you uh or um, it signals to a listener, I'm not done talking, so just give me a minute. But the really fascinating thing about the difference between um and uh is um seems to signal you need a longer delay. You're going to take a few more extra seconds than uh, which usually precedes shorter delays. So when we look at them from a statistical viewpoint, we measure the amount of pause that follows the, or, or the, um, we find really robust evidence that, uh, is a signal of sh- I'm going to take a short delay and, um, signals to the listener, it's going to be a longer delay. So it's really interesting information that it is, is transmitting to a listener and what that seems to do is not only let the listener know you're not done, but it also seems to have the listener prepare their brain for receiving something more difficult to process. So either a more abstract word, a more difficult word, or um, an unexpected word that will be new information. And that causes the listener to actually process that information more quickly than when we compare it to situations where there was no uh or um preceding that same word. Um, And not only that, but they also seem to remember it better when we give them a test about an hour later after they've heard those words. So if we had given them an experiment where we said, uh, or um, before a word, Mm -hmm. and then compared that to a group that didn't hear that, we find that the group that heard um or uh do better on memory tests. So there are a lot of positive benefits cognitively and as a listener to having "um" and uh in your speech
0: wow that's that's definitely i haven't heard before it's it's super interesting to first of all to know the difference between these two i'm a longer expecting a longer pause and i uh, spent expect, expecting a shorter silence there and also what you say is that it's like a known hidden language in in both directions right the speaker and the in the listener so both understand this um and uh, the the dynamics even though well it's somehow um how to say
1: Yes. Yes. It's also interesting. Here's some interesting um, results for different speaking contexts, though. When it's a non-native speaker that is speaking in a foreign language for them, listeners don't seem to get the same benefit. So, for example, if I'm talking to someone that is not a native English speaker, but they're speaking in English and they use um and uh, it seems to not have the same benefit for the native English speaker because they are not sure um, whether to interpret the um and uh in that list, in that speaker's speech as indicators that they're not familiar with the English words or indicators that it's a more difficult word. So they seem to suspend the um, ability to have it help in pro- information processing and memory. So We're very specific about when the um and uh offer us benefits and when they don't. Um, And I think the reason that people so dislike them in public speaking is because what it indicates to us as a listener is that someone is less familiar with what they're going to say, and it's more difficult, which often indicates in a public speaking context that they haven't practiced. Because if you have practiced, then what you're going to say is very familiar to you, and it shouldn't be difficult to access cognitively because you're familiar with it. And so I think it's reasonable that in a public speaking context where someone's giving a speech or giving a presentation, we have an expectation that they have practiced it. And that should reduce your um and ah. If you've practiced something, it will automatically reduce the numbers of um and ah you use because you are more cognitively familiar with it. And so if someone ums and uhs a lot in a presentation, what it signals to us as a listener is that they have not practiced and they don't know the material because they wouldn't um and uh as much if they did. And I think that's a legitimate reason why perhaps in public speaking, we do want to make sure we practice enough to reduce the ums and uhs in that context.
0: Yeah, indeed. And I believe it, it happens, right? If you really practice a lot, you will have less of this um and us because you know your your material, but that that happens for instance in a in a prepared presentation, a keynote for instance, but it's different in a in an interview, so if you are in a panel, you are still speaking in public in a panel in the spotlight, but if you have to answer a question that you are not completely prepared, well, then it comes a dynamic that you say using the um to show that I'm thinking and the silence is going to be a little bit longer. So, yeah, it is it's super interesting. I would say the completely different context. Well, not completely different context, but a very different context in how this um um, um um work. Indeed, as you as you put it on your on your book, you said that they are a speaking superpower. That's how you wrote it, Will, right? <laughs>
1: And they do, they definitely have a good, a really good function in many ways. And and I think what we do is we tend to judge people for them when we, try to apply how we feel about public speaking and prepared speaking to everyday conversations. And when people are not prepared, meaning that they are asked a question like you you just suggested, where they haven't prepared an answer or when we're having a conversation, we should actually thank people for using Amina because it means they're really thinking about their answers and they're signaling to us some really important information.
0: Indeed. Another, uh, another topic that is on your book is... Vocal fry. So could you tell us what is that concept for ones are not so familiar? What is vocal fry? And yeah, what is, what is wrong or not wrong with that?
1: Sure. Now, vocal fry is a vocal affectation where the vocal folds are bunched up a little bit. So the vocal folds are in your throat behind your Adam's apple that are at the top of your glottis. And it's it's through that by manipulating the vocal folds, which are kind of these muscular flaps on the top, that we are able to produce speech and our pitch Comes from the vibration of the vocal folds, um, but when you hold them, usually you manipulate. You're not aware of doing it, but you manipulate your mm-hmm. vocal folds and you hold them sort of long and thin, and push air through from your lungs, and that creates a a really regular vibration that we hear as pitch. But when you kind of, when your muscles are sort of bunched up or relaxed a little bit more, then the air pushing through them creates more irregular pulsing. And so we hear this, this irregular pulsing through sort of thicker, more laid back, uh, more relaxed vocal flaps. We hear this as creaky or um, sort of um, grating sound. So a lot of times we associate it with speech of... uh, celebrities like Kim Kardashian, where she, at the end of a phrase, she'll say something like, I don't know about that, mm-hmm. where it's really kind of crackly, sort of that kind of sound. I'm not a natural vocal fryer, but that's the this noise that we're creating. One thing that's interesting about vocal fry is in American speech, a lot of people have recently associated it with young women's voices and not in a positive way, because many times things that are associated with young women's voices don't get viewed positively. And vocal fry is certainly one. In fact, it's been called The Verbal Tick of Doom, as well as the Vocal Fry epidemic, Um, and it's also been called a pathology. So it has been likened to a disease in young women's voices. (laughs) The interesting thing about Vocal Fry, though, is it's actually a lot older than... 20 years ago in American speech, when we look at research on vocal fry, particularly in British and Australian speech, we find that in the 1970s and 80s, it had been studied as a hyper-masculine feature that seemed to signal masculinity um, by the use of fry. And particularly in Britain, it was used as an upper-class authoritative feature. So it exists clearly in other languages. And it actually, in some languages um, like Zapotec in Mexico, it's actually used as a meaningful feature of that language. So it's part of the language itself, but in many, many other languages like English, it's simply used as a social signal to communicate metalinguistic or social information. And in Britain, it seemed to communicate that you were a higher class and you had authority and maybe even you were a little bit bored um you know and and kind of hard to hard, hard to please but in american speech what seems to have happened is around the 2000s um we noticed that there is an uptick in vocal fry use among women in networking contexts so women broadcasters and when we compare when we look at phoneticians research at the time that compares vocal fry use in newscast speech, they found that women used it about twice as much as men in those contexts, women broadcasters, which seems to have made it more visible to Americans and made it associated with women's speech. And if we look at the same time about judgments of voice, just voice pitch in general, there is overwhelming research um, that Voices with a lower pitch are viewed more favorably than voices with a high pitch. And guess who has high pitched voices? Women, right? Mm -hmm. So men tend to be viewed, their voices are viewed as more professional, more credible, more authoritative, more dominant, um, and more appropriate for leadership. Women's voices with higher pitch tend not to be viewed very favorably on those dimensions, but they are viewed favorably for attractiveness and fertility. So if you want a, a mate, a lot of times men will find and and women also will rate this the same way that higher pitched voices on women are more attractive, but lower pitched voices on men are both more attractive and more favorable professionally. So women that are moving into pref- the professional world, like broadcasting, where voice was a big part of it, seem to have had a pressure to lower their voice pitch, to become more professional, credible and authoritative and, and also take on leadership roles. And in fact, if you look at research that follows people in workplace environments that take on different tasks. So those that become more um, higher in the, um, the hierarchy of the workplace tend to start lowering their voice pitch over time. And that's for men and women. So clearly there is an association when you get to higher ranks that you should lower your voice pitch. And we do this unconsciously. Well, vocal fry is basically a low pick pitch. Feature So you can only have vocal fry in your voice when your voice drops to a low pitch. Mm -hmm. So it seems to correlate with women moving into more professional circles, and young women have adopted it because it seems to have this professional but also chill, laid back, relaxed, and intimate kind of quality Mm -hmm. that comes across when they use vocal fry. The problem is that people that don't use fry and older speakers have been very strong in their dislike of vocal fry on women. And it's been called all sorts of really negative things. But what we find is this tends to happen with features that women lead in. Um, so features like like use, features like using intensifiers such as literally and so and totally, as well as vocal fry. Those are all features women lead in the use of. And those are also all features that women get um, punished for using. Because they're viewed as flighty or weak or uncertain or kind of vacuous features, and I think that's a problem more broadly with the history of how we view women's voices in general, rather than the use of women of these features in women itself. If that makes sense?
0: Yes, yes, indeed. I see it as a well. It's a trend now, that, as you say. It's mostly in America. I'm not aware in many other languages, in many other countries. Yeah, but it's. Mostly used by women, and and now it's just a trend that is again scrutinized. It's, someone is pointing the the fingers on that, and is as you said dislike. That's what you it say It's just dislike. But it's, yes, uh, again, there's nothing wrong with that style anyway. As you say, it has been um, well regarded in dif- in different geographies and different times of of history. So it's just that's how it is perceived today.
1: Right, and it's a rather ingenious way to try to get um, associations that are positive with low pitch while at the same time maintaining the femininity of high pitch. So women that are using vocal fry are using the higher pitch and most of their speaking voice and then lower pitch as they get to the end of a sentence, which is where the vocal fry tends to come in. And so they're actually kind of hitting two, two stones with one bird <laughs> <laughs> or two birds with one stone, I guess it is, where they're they're getting both the, uh, the positive workplace associations, the positive authoritative associations with vocal fry, but also the positive attractive and feminine associations with higher pitch voices. So it's actually pretty ingenious Way to solve that problem.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's a good uh, good use of the range of voice if you see it from the just from the voice perspective. Could you share yes, also could you also share a few more examples from your book, specific examples that?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, in, in terms of public speaking, I think um, since I know that a lot of your audience is interested in that. Area. I think one of the things that was really interesting in my book is the use of intensifiers to boost or emphasize what you're going to say, and those are words like really, very, so, Mm -hmm. totally, absolutely, completely, um, awfully, all these words that help us ramp up what we're going to say, often they occur before adjectives or verbs, Um, and and literally used non-literally is an example of an intensifier. And the funny thing is, a lot of times we hear people critiqued for using a lot of intensifiers. So um, President Trump, for example, when he was president, was often criticized for using very too much. So he would say that's very, 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 very good. <laughs> and people said, well, you know, that's not very informative. <laughs> but the point of using a lot of varies, whether you are pro-Trump or, or not pro-Trump, the point of using a lot of, of intensifier words like that is because you want to boost or amplify whatever you're saying. So if you say something's good, people might be, okay, well, it's all right. But if you say it's very, very, very good, then that's communicating to your audience that you're boosting or amplifying how good it was to, to attract their interest in it and intensifiers are something that have changed drastically over the course of English's history and it's true in other languages too that they tend to turn over very fast which means that we get new ones a lot of times we start bringing in new ones so new ones in american english are things like literally used non literally or hella or hecka which is used on the Cal- in california to say it's something very, very much, or um, it's, it's totally, so, pretty. Mm-hmm. All of those words are, are amplifiers that are pretty recent. Um, very itself, the word itself, is also only about 300 years old used in that way because the original meaning for very in English was true or actual. The same way that it's used in mm-hmm. French, it comes from the same root. The word vrai in French, c'est vrai, means mm-hmm. it is true. And vrai and very are the same word, just centuries of development separately. So they come from the same old French root. Um, And so very, in, in the history of English, meant true. And what we find is many words that meant true or actual end up becoming intensifiers over time. So really, meant true or actual. To be real, it means to be true or actual. And now we say it's really good. Very, meant true or actual. And now we say it's very good. Um So both of those really and very have become intensifiers. Now look at literally, literally means true or actual. And guess what? Now it means very. So we Mm -hmm. say it's literally amazing. It was, I'm literally frozen, which boosts or amplifies what you're saying afterwards. So what's interesting in public speaking is what we tend to be told is not to have a lot of those in our speech, to not use intensifiers, to be more descriptive, but What we find in communication research is people that use intensifiers are actually generally pretty positively received as as speakers because those intensifiers communicate certainty. They communicate a level of intensity that is convincing and persuasive to an audience. So if you say some, if someone asks you about the sales in your business and you say, oh, they're good, well, that's okay. But if you say they're absolutely great, that boosts. How certain I am that we're doing well, that we're on the right track. So, in, in public speaking, when we throw in a few intensifiers in our speech, say it—it it was amazing, it was amazingly good, it was completely uh, awesome. You know, whatever you're talking about, that seems to actually help persuade the listeners that what you're saying is accurate, and um, also help intensify what you're saying. So while you want to stay away from ones that might be marked as being youthful or um, too informal, it does seem that adding intensifiers in your speech is a very positive trait for public speaking
0: mm-hmm. so it becomes um yeah, it becomes a rhetorical devices that that's what they become
1: absolutely absolutely. And even though we're told to drop them from our speech, I think when people say be more descriptive, what they mean is, don't it's not really coming up with a more descriptive way to say something was boosted but then maybe provide examples so when you say oh we had an absolutely great year in sales then give a couple examples of how that happened of how it was great and so that's where you can add the additional information to be more descriptive but it does seem like keeping those boosters in is very valuable from a communicative standpoint and so something that speakers should think about when they're talking to use intensifiers judiciously
0: mhm yeah, they are. They are. They are tools, definitely. Absolutely. Maybe one more example of, from your book. Something that.
1: Oh sure, sure. Well, the other thing I get asked a lot about is uh, discourse markers, which are things such as the use of light in non-traditional positions, or "you know," or "I mean," or "well." Uh, I think a lot of people have been trained that those are negative, uh, traits, but again, like intensifiers, they actually serve a really good communicative purpose. They connect their connectives, um, and they help make different parts of a of a, of a discourse, different parts of a conversation cohere in a way that if you didn't have them would feel robotic and unnatural. And in fact, we find that when we play different, um, stories, being told for listeners, and in some of them we have discourse markers, and in some of them we don't, that listeners actually prefer the ones with some discourse markers because they help make the conversation seem like it flows smoothly and it helps connect one sentence to another. So a lot of times a discourse marker will come up when I'm trying to do some connective work, some cohesion from a discourse standpoint, or try to sort of let you know my stance or my position on things and like, and you know, do that kind of work, even though we tend not to like them. So, you know, is a marker of, of listener inference. When I say, you know, I was doing this the other day and this happened, that means I'm inviting you to have an inference about what I'm going to talk about. It's showing that we have some background, some shared background, Mm -hmm. and that I'm calling on that shared background for you to understand what I'm about to say. Um, So I'm kind of inviting inference from the listener. So it's a really positive thing from a communicative standpoint, even though people often say, I don't like it when people say, you know, the other one that's strongly disliked is like, and this is of course the, one of the fastest growing discourse markers in American English. And even in worldwide global Englishes, it's really spread out, out of America. And what's fascinating about like is people tend to dismiss it as being useless but, if you look at how it's used, it's actually quite powerful and purposeful. It's arisen because there was a lack in English that it helps to provide. So when you, for example, talk about something you're going to estimate or or sort of um, approximate, we typically in English have used the the preposition about so he was about twelve mm-hmm. but it that is not so informal, it's its not as um, hip sort of as saying he's like 12, which does the exact same work as about. So it can't be useless because it's a one-to-one substitution for this other preposition. But what it's doing is it's marking you as a speaker with a little more flair, right? A little more youthful um, vigor. And what we find when we look at studies of who uses about versus like, it's older speakers that tend to use about and then younger speakers that use like in exactly the same context. Um, and then it also seems to help us provide some sort of subjective sensibility if we use it as a discourse marker, which is a separate use than as an approximator, of the example I just gave as a preposition. So when we use it as a discourse marker, we might stick it in at the beginning of our Senate. So I might say something like, I'm not going to worry about it too much. Like, what would be the point? And that like there serves to help what I'm about to say cohere to what I just said. So it's telling you I'm linking these two. These two have a relationship to each other, and I'm about to give you a subjective example or a subjective continuation of what I just said. So it implies that what I'm about to tell you is something that is from my own subjective personal experience. That seems to be the role that like serves there. And then finally, we also see it used as a quotative verb where I'm talking about what someone was saying or thinking. And the advantage of saying, I was like, I don't think I'm going to go. And he was like, I think you should, is that it allows us to talk about not just verbatim what someone said as a quote, but also it helps us convey that sometimes this might be what they were thinking and not what they were actually saying but the Mm -hmm. verb to say that sometimes used in that same circumstance doesn't allow for that kind of interpretation. So like seems to have arisen in order to convey a subjective sensibility about what was being thought or how I was processing an event while it was happening that the verb to say just didn't allow. So what's, really fascinating about like is it actually seems to be really powerful, really purposeful. It has a function and it has several different functions. Of course, for people that don't use it and they don't understand those functions, it sounds meaningless and useless. But for people that use it, namely younger speakers, it really does serve a really important function, which is probably why it's one of the fastest evolving changes in the English language this century
0: definitely, uh, yeah, super interesting eh? so, Uh, you had mentioned that very used to be the equivalent of vrai in French, so it means true, so this word used to be the same and then they took different well, the English one changed of meaning Uh, can you tell me more recently which languages are, are influencing or have influenced English the most in the recent years?
1: Well, sure. There are quite a few different influences and different types of influences that um, different languages have had on English. Of obviously a huge impact in our history, but recently, of course, Spanish has been very influential on English in many ways. So it's a lot of times we think, well, we get words from a language, and that is true. We often borrow words from a language, but the impact of languages on English has been far greater than that. It often affects. How those languages are spoken and certain um, underlying pressures on English that come in from having contact with these other languages. And in the history of English, of course, French had a huge impact in that way on the structure of English, but also on the vocabulary. But I'd say in modern times, Spanish is by far, the strongest influence on English. Um, we get a lot of words from Spanish, of course, and uh, obviously food is one that people think of, but there are also things like just when I say he wasn't talking, yeah, I could say he's incommunicado. That's a word from Spanish. Or when I say no problemo, that's a word from Spanish. Pronto, patio, siesta, tons of words from Spanish. But the also what we find is in many, many urban areas of American English, um, where American English is spoken, so like Miami and Texas, we get a mix of Spanish and English. So its impact is not simply on the words that we say, but also on the structure of English. And this is called substrate influence. That means when second generation speakers of a language, so Maybe your parents came to the United States and they spoke Spanish and you learned English as a native speaker. So you may not even speak Spanish or you speak Spanish as a second language, but English is your first language. Well, a lot of times when you're in communities with a lot of Spanish spoken around or a lot of that substrate influence, your your dialect of English will show the influence of some very subtle differences in the way things are pronounced or the way things are structured. So a really good example in Spanish would be, that in Spanish, there's devoicing of S's when it's in between vowels. So a word like lazy becomes lacy, is mm-hmm. lacy. So that there's a very subtle difference. And what we find is second generation speakers of Spanish often have this to a very slight degree in their speech, even though they're not native speakers of Spanish. That gets pushed into the language. And so we get these substrate influences that are very impactful over the course of time on dialects spoken in those areas. Another great example of a language that has had an impact in that way on English is Vietnamese. In areas where there are a lot of Vietnamese immigrants like in Minnesota, there's a huge Hmong community. Uh, um, and what we find is the influence of Vietnamese on the English spoken by second generation speakers is actually quite vast on the structure. So for example, in Vietnamese, you don't have plural markers, so you wouldn't say something like three dollars. you would say something like three dollar. And that's why on in a lot of Vietnamese English, um, dialects, you hear $3 instead of $3. So the influence of languages is far past just the influence of vocabulary. Um, but of course, vocabulary has come in from many countries and many languages this era. So uh, Japanese has had a huge impact, especially among those that are really interested in, in manga mm-hmm. or manga, I think it's called manga, and that sort of Japanese um, animation and anime. And a lot of young Americans are really interested in anime and Japanese culture and Japanese language. So they have borrowed in words and they've started to learn Japanese and it has brought some of that Japanese into their English. Um, and yeah, we also have, for example, in New York, a really strong influence in y- of Yiddish. And that's where we get words like um, schmuck and nosh and schmooze, which have become very widespread in American English more generally. So quite a bit of influence on English. And this is just par for the course of English. It has always been a language that has absorbed a huge amount of, of foreign language influence. And that's what's made English so rich over time.
0: Hmm, so, very interesting. Valerie, could you share with us what is your favorite quotation?
1: Sure. You know, there are several that I I really enjoy, but one that has been attributed to Mark Twain, I think really sums up the spirit of what I try to do because it's such a a common feeling that people have. And Mark Twain said, nothing so much needs reforming as other people's habits. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that because it's so true. We are such busybodies when it comes to what we think is right and wrong. And We don't just look at ourselves and think, how do I want to change me? We often want to look at others and tell them how to change themselves because we are so worried about other people's business. And um, I love that quote because it really sums up nothing so much needs reforming as other people's habits. And of course, he meant that as tongue in cheek. And and I think that's really true of language very, very much so.
0: (laughs) Yeah, really good one. I have not heard before. It's a really good one. Could you recommend us now one book that has been particularly inspiring or influential for you?
1: Yes, well, that's a hard choice because there's obviously a lot of books that that I enjoy. But in terms of language, I think one that's really good, uh, particularly maybe for non-native speakers or people that are interested in, in you know, prescriptivism. So not really the thing I talk about. I talk more about how these things function as users use them. But a friend of mine, Ellen Jovin, wrote a book called Rebel with a Clause, which is such a delightful book. And it's, it's more of a prescriptive grammar, but she does it in a very humane way where she talks about different things like the Oxford comma and you know, various other structures, ending sentences with the preposition, those things that we've been told are wrong to do. And she goes around to different cities, and she sets up a grammar table, and she invites people to come ask her grammar questions. And it's such a delightful book. It's a beautiful way to learn about grammar, but learn it in a way that's very humanizing and um, sweet and kind. And it's one of my favorite books, Rebel with the Clause," it's called.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it sounds different. It's super interesting, a word to read for any of us. So finally, please share with us an exercise something practical that you would recommend us doing regularly, a routine to shine.
1: Well, I talk a lot in my life as a speaker publicly, but also as a lecturer. And what I find is preparation is so important to being good at what you do. There is nobody that is naturally amazing without practice. And so I am one that constantly tries to improve what I'm learning, what I'm thinking. I practice, even though I've taught the same class, for example, every semester for most of my career, I don't ever just wing it. I never do. That is not my style. And it has made me a really good public speaker because I know my material because I review it it constantly. So just because you've known something once doesn't mean you always know it well. Um, and in addition, I always look for new information to add to that. So I would say my best advice is to be prepared and to practice. And that is really a winning combination to being a successful speaker.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you for this reminder. And, well, I can say a very really fascinating conversation with you. I learned quite a lot of new things. Yeah, and made me think, but, yeah, I'm sure our listeners as well. If you have anything else to share with us, we share with with our listeners, please.
1: Oh, sure. I just would like to probably leave with the idea of just language tolerance, both for yourself and for others. A lot of times we're really hard on ourselves. It's not just the way we look at other people's speech, but we're often very, very hard on ourselves about the way we speak. And I think what we sometimes forget is language is about communication and about connection. And try to keep that in mind that if you are able to make a connection it doesn't matter if you make a mistake from ex- for you know as a non-native speaker, or if you say something like like in your speech. It doesn't matter because the point is having a connection with someone and and communicating in ways that are satisfying to both of you in terms of building a relationship. And so, just be gentle with yourself.
0: Can get in touch with you or find more about your work?
1: Sure. Well, the book is called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good and Bad English. And it's available anywhere books are sold and on Amazon, of course. Um, You can also find it at the Penguin Random House website. Um, But if you want more information about me and my work, you can just go to my website, ValerieFriedland.com. I'm assuming you'll put that in the show notes so they can just click on it. But ValerieFriedland.com is my website. Or you can go look at my language blog that appears monthly on Psychology Today by looking for language in the wild and then just my name Valerie Friedland and it should come up yes
0: I will add those on the show notes of this episode again thank you very much Valerie for this amazing conversation and all the best
1: absolutely Oscar thank you for having me I enjoyed it very much
0: are you working on the tech industry if so do you want to start taking action crafting your own tech talk and soon getting booked to speak. I have designed, especially for you who work in the technology industry, an online training program. Rock the Tech Stage On Demand is an online self-paced training course to become a successful speaker in tech events. Visit today www.rockthetechstage.com slash on demand and start your journey now.